Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, I do thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity. What a privilege to be able to come here and sit down and to listen to your word, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, what an honor it is for me to be in this position, to be able to be used by you to share your word, Lord. I pray that I am not standing in the way or um, say anything that might hinder someone from hearing what it is that you have to say. In fact, Lord, just use me as your tool this morning. Lord, I pray that you've already begun to prepare our hearts to hear what it is you have to hear today, has say today. Lord, I thank you, and it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, the last time we were here together, um, and in Matthew, we were looking at chapter 15, which was a, uh, not last week, but the week before. And 15 is such an amazing chapter, isn't it? There's stuff in there. Uh, there's so much really great stuff in at chapter 15, I mean, we see the scribes and the Pharisees, they come and they're looking to find fault in Jesus. You know, they're not really seeking him. They're seeking fault in him. But well, guess what? They're not going to find it. He's Jesus. He's perfect. But remember, what they do is they find fault in his followers. Now, that's easy to do. It's easy to find fault in the followers of Jesus because, in case you've forgotten, we're not perfect. Some of you were not perfect on the way here this morning, I'm sure. It's easy to find fault in the followers of Jesus. And so that's all they're left with. And so that is what they do. And it says that they came to them and they said, uh, Jesus, you know, your followers are not, they're transgressing the traditions of our elders by not washing their hands ceremoniously before they eat bread. And uh, Jesus says to them, he kind of turns it around and he says, well, yes, maybe they're transgressing the traditions of the elders, but you're transgressing the law of God that says that you're supposed to honor your mother and your father, and you've set up loopholes for yourself to be able to get out of that. And in doing so, in following the traditions rather than the word of God or the God's law, you've essentially, he says, you've made the law of God of no effect. Think about it like this. The law of God is like a mirror that simply reflects our sinfulness. We look into the mirror and we see that our face is filthy. Now, you don't take the mirror off the wall and start wiping your face with it to clean your face. You don't use the law to clean yourself up. It merely reflects how you failed. Then you go to God and ask for forgiveness and he cleanses you. But he was saying to them, what you've done with your traditions is you've essentially painted over the mirror black. So now when you look into it, you no longer see your sin reflected in it. You just see that you're following the tradition. I'm keeping the traditions and you're making the law of God ineffective. <clears throat> then he drops a bombshell on them. And he says, it's not what goes into your body that defiles a man, but what comes out. Now, they held really strict dietary laws. And they're like, well, you can't eat certain things or else you're defiled. And this is a, 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 kind of the first point where Jesus says, it's not about the food that you eat that defiles you. It's actually about the things that you say and how you act, which comes from inside of you that shows that you're defiled. And they're like, <gasps> Essentially, he leaves these guys behind and he goes on into this Gentile region. Remember, he goes into Tyre and Sidon. Um, and I believe for this one encounter with this one woman who, this Syrophoenician woman, this Canaanite woman, Matthew calls her, comes to Jesus calling him son of David, using a messianic term, a one that she's, she's not a Jew. She's a, a, he, Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman to say, so not Jewish comes to him with a title that she's been given saying, use this, address him in this way, and maybe he'll do what it is that you ask. And Jesus seemingly speaks to her, first ignores her, and then speaks harshly to her. But see, the thing is, and what we learned last week is that Jesus sees faith in her 
and begins to draw it out of her by speaking to her in a certain way. And essentially, she gets to the point where she's, instead of saying, Jesus, son of David, she gets to a place of a personal cry and says, Lord, help me. And Jesus says, well, it's not right for me to throw the crumbs of the children to the dogs or the food, the bread of the children to the dogs. And she looks at him now. She's beginning to understand where he's going. And she says, all I want is what the children have rejected. And Jesus looks at her and it doesn't say this, but I believe he says to her, that's me. And that's what you get. That's what you get. You will get what they rejected. He goes on from that place to a a place called Decapolis, the place of 10 Greek cities. Um, And a great multitude come out to him and they listen to him teach for three days. And over the course of three days, they eat up all their food. And Jesus then looks out and has compassion on the crowd. And he says, look, they've been with me for three days. I can't send them away lest they faint on their way home. Let's feed them. And the disciples look at him and say, well, we're we're in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going to get bread? Unlike what you just did for 5,000 plus people just a short time ago. (laughs) And Jesus, I'm sure Jesus is like, boys. Now, I don't think they forgot. I don't think they forgot. I think they, um, they never imagined that Jesus would do such an amazing miracle for a group of Gentiles. But Jesus kind of emphasizes the message of, I am the provider of the Jew and the Gentile. I am the one who came to deliver and provide for everyone. In fact, he's going to emphasize that point After he rises from the grave and before he ascends into heaven, he gathers them all together and he says, now go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so he does something that blows their minds a little bit. Like they can't understand like, well, why would he do that great miracle for this, this people over here? They're Gentiles. They're not good for much. We're not though, really. I mean, when you think about it but we do have the same Jesus. We all need the same Jesus. That brings us to chapter 16, also a very full, jam-packed, amazing chapter. So let's take a look at it. It says, then, verse 1, chapter 16, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Okay, so first of all, you got to know, it says there, now they, they got in a boat, you can see at the, the end of the last chapter, they got in a boat, and they went back to the other side now, back into Jewish territory, and hey, waiting for them are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now you know times are desperate when the Sadducees are in league with the Pharisees because they're completely opposite. The, the Pharisees are the, the legalists, And the Sadducees, they're the liberals of the time. And yet, they're they're able to come together to come against Jesus. So you know something's going on. Let me help you understand Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees are the legalists. So think of God. I'm not going to do Sadducee. I I promise. (laughs) I can already see Denise is already laughing, thinking I'm going to tell that joke. I'm not going to do it this time. Think about this, like think of God's law as like a recipe to be followed. The Pharisees looked at that recipe and they said, okay, this recipe calls for one tablespoon of salt. Well, salt is good. So if one tablespoon is good, then four is even better. And they would add four tablespoons to the recipe, thinking that that made it even better. But if you add four tablespoons instead of one of salt to a recipe, what do you do? You wreck it. Now, the Sadducees on the other side, they would look at the recipe of the word of God and they would say, salt, salt is so salty. How about sugar? Sugar is good. It kind of looks like salt, but it's sweet and everybody loves it. But you know what? Let's not put in one tablespoon. Let's put in four tablespoons of sugar instead of one tablespoon of salt. And if you replace salt with sugar and four times as much, what happens to the recipe? You wreck it. 
And Jesus would say, and the word affirms this, don't add, don't take away, don't change the word. Stick to the word. These are the guys, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, they can't agree on anything except that they have to do something about Jesus. And so they come and they say to him, show us uh, a sign from heaven. It's like they're saying, um, Jesus, if you would just give us a miracle, then we would believe you are who you say you are. Now, is that true? Would they believe? No, because it says here that they came to test him, right? They're coming in and they're not, they're not just asking for a miracle because he's been doing miracles all over the place. A sign from heaven is a bigger miracle. It's a divine miracle. It's something that says um, it will confirm who you are, that you are who you claim to be. They're saying, give us some big sign, Jesus, that will show us that you are the one that you claim to be. You know that they will not believe. That's their problem. This isn't the, this isn't the, you know, they're not saying, well, do a bigger miracle than you've already done. He's done some massive things. He calmed the sea by speaking to it twice. He fed 5,000 plus people with nothing and had 12 baskets of leftovers. He then fed 4,000 plus with nothing and had seven baskets of leftovers, creating something from nothing, which is a creator miracle. Still not good enough for them. They want something. Maybe you're thinking, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe all of this. If I, if I could witness a miracle, then I would believe all this. Well, first of all, I would say, have you ever had a child born to you? That's a miracle. Do you know what it takes to go from nothing to a person? God. That's a miracle. But here's the thing. Miracles do not create faith. Miracles do not bring you to a place of understanding your sin or to a place of seeking um, forgiveness from sin. Miracles just make people go, wow, whoa. But they don't convince you of your sin, and that's what it takes to be saved. They're saying, um, you know what, if, if you would just give us a sign from heaven that uh, kind of backs up who you say you are, then... We would believe you. Jesus doesn't buy that. It says he answered to them, he answered them and said, when it's, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather for the sky is red and threatening. You know, I was, how many of you guys, you know where I'm going. How many of you were taught the saying, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Okay. I don't understand that, actually. The sky is red at night because the sun sets. In the morning, the sun comes up again. The sky turns red. So I don't understand the saying. But you can see that it goes all the way back to at least this time where Jesus was saying, look, if the sky is red at night, you know that it's going to be a good day the next day. But if you wake up in the morning and the sky is red, I know how to fix that. Get up after the sunrise. <laughs> Hypocrites, he says, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. He says to them, and they're like, well, if we just saw a miracle from heaven, that would convince us that you are who you say you are. And he says, liars, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. You can see indication in nature and discern the weather. You can look out and say, it looks cloudy. It's probably going to rain. Or it's a very blue sky. It probably won't rain. But he's saying, but the things that I do have no impact on you. He's saying, it should be simple for you to know this. But here's the reality. They would not believe, so they could not believe. Do you understand? They would not believe, so they could not believe. They didn't lack Evidence, they lacked honesty and humility. 
He goes on and he says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Again, he gives them that. He says, this is the sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And we looked at this in detail the first time he said it. The idea comparing himself to Jonah is really him talking about his own death and resurrection. In fact, what he says is the only thing that really is going to change a heart is the understanding that Jesus died, but then rose again in defeating death. That's the only thing that convinces a heart of its sinful nature and seeks then forgiveness for it. The only thing, miracles do not save. Only the, resu- the knowledge of the resurrection and the belief that Jesus died for your sin, that's what saves you. He leaves them. Finally, he's just like, we're done. We're done. He leaves them. His disciples follow along. And it says, he departed uh, and he left and departed from them. Now, verse 5, it's an insert to help us understand why there is confusion that is about to happen. Verse 5, it says, Now his disciples had come to the other side. They had forgotten to take bread. <laughs> just that's so you know why it's confusing coming up. And then Jesus says, so now, you know, he's just come off of this kind of altercation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as they're walking away, he turns to his disciples and he says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, I like this part right here because he's warning them not of the really good teaching of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, not of the really sound doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's saying, beware, he's going to tell you in verse 12, he's going to define it, beware of the doctrine of these two groups because it's dangerous. It gets in and it can spread. I mention that because there is a parable that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter 13 where he talks about a woman who put leaven in a lump and it spread to the whole lump. This is one of the reasons why I believe that parable in chapter 13 isn't talking about the spread of the gospel, but rather the bad doctrine that's out there that can easily spread through the church. And Jesus reiterates it right here in this chapter. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. (laughs) Why didn't they have bread? Didn't they just come off of a big thing where they had seven baskets of leftovers of bread? Where did all that bread go? Did they just like that night, they're just like, let's all eat, let's eat all the bread. And they just had, they're just like, oh, I'm so full of bread and fish. I couldn't eat another bite. Here's what I think happened though. I think they were packing up to go, and one guy says, got bread? And he said, got bread? Like, I'm asking you if you have it, but you think I'm saying I have it. Got bread? Oh, got bread? Got bread? And the thing is that nobody brought it, and so they got no bread. No one has any bread. And that's the thing that they are most concerned about right here. They're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's mad at us because we didn't bring any bread. I thought you were bringing it. Well, you said got bread. No, I said got bread. (laughs) But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves or the five of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves or the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up. He's, I love this also because he kind of um, states that both of these events happen. You know, there is a little confusion. Some people think that they're the same event, just recorded differently. Well, I don't think Jesus got that wrong. Um, but what he's saying is, you remember when I, I created bread for 5,000 plus people pretty much out of nothing. And then I, I created bread um, and fish from almost nothing for 4,000 plus people. You guys, you remember that, right? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? He says, since when have I needed you to provide for me? I'm the one who provided bread to the 5,000 people. I'm the one who provided bread to the 4,000 people. When have I ever asked you to supply my need? I am the one who supplies your need. I'm your provider. You're not my provider. Hmm. 
don't we sometimes and so often feel like we have to help Jesus provide? Like, Jesus, I got this one. Thanks for that last one, but I got this one. And he's like, but I'm the provider. That's part of my name. That's one of my names. I'm the provider. The thing is also that I see is they were so about this very insignificant physical need that they were missing a great spiritual truth that he was trying to convey. So wrapped up in their stomachs. Oh, we forgot to bring bread. Oh no, Jesus knows we didn't bring bread. And he says, you're so wrapped up in this little need that you have physically that you're missing a spiritual truth that is so much more important. You ever do that? Do you know I have kind of a ritual? I hate to call it that, but you know, it's a thing I do every morning. Um, where I come here, I go to my office, I get my coffee, and I open up the Word to do my devotional. But I have to get that coffee first. Do you know how many times I hear God's voice saying, you got to get that coffee first, really? I was like, but, but you know, it's just a little thing. It's just a little thing. Now, the reason why he reminds me of that, because what happens is I go out to make coffee and I see ants. And I'm like, uh, put my coffee aside. I get the ant stuff out and I put that down. And then I pick up my coffee and then I go to do something else. And pretty soon I'm so distracted that I actually don't get to the devotion at all. I'm so wrapped up in the little minor physical things that I'm dealing with that I miss anything that he had for me in that moment for that devotional time in the morning. You know, the one mistake I always make is just open up my laptop and look at my email for like, I'm just going to look for a second. Can't do it. I can't do it. These guys are so wrapped up in this small physical need that they're missing this huge spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to convey. Beware of the leaven. He says in verse 11 at the end, he says, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware about the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Thankfully, they got it. Then Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is one of the best sounding, most delicious sounding places in the Bible. Caesarea Philippi. <laughs> Unfortunately, that pie is filled with pagan worship. That's, that's what Caesarea Philippi was about. So not a good pie. They go to this region. It's uh, at the base of Mount Hermon. That's at the very northern end of, of um, their, of Jewish territory. Um, and at that place, there's this uh, cave. And from that cave springs out this spring of, of fresh water. And it comes out and then falls over this waterfall. And it's actually a place of pagan worship. So there are many different types of pagan worship going on there. But one of the areas is the, um, the god Pan. Um, and so that's kind of the name. The, the pagan name is Pania or Bania because they're not great with the P sound uh, in that area. And so um, there is a lot of pagan worship. In, in fact, one of the pagan um, worship ceremonies is they, they take a human sacrifice and throw it into the cave in hopes to appease the God there. And so this is a place of extreme pagan worship going on all around them. And that's kind of where they find themselves at this place when Jesus starts to talk to them. And it says that he asks his disciples, who do, you say, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So Jesus would like to know at this point, who are people saying that I am? What are you hearing out there? And so they said, some say John the Baptist. Well, we know who's saying John the Baptist. We just read that. Herod is like, that, that Jesus, that's John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And some people are believing that. And so some people think that he's John the Baptist. And some say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus asked these guys, who, who are you hearing that people think that I am? Who do people say that I am? After all that I've done and all that people have heard, who, what are you hearing out there? And they come and they say John the Baptist. They say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Um, did you know that these are all still, these are still who people think Jesus is today? Like, if you talk to people and you say, what do you think about this Jesus guy? We know, who do you think he is? You know what you'll get? A good man, a good teacher, uh, a guy that did some miracles, 
a prophet, all of the same things that they were saying there, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, a prophet. It's still going on today. It's the enemy getting in and planting those seeds of doubt. He's not really God. You know, he, yeah, he's a good man. Oh, he was a good teacher. Oh, he did some miracles. He was a prophet. What they were saying now then is the same thing that you'll hear now. But Jesus wasn't those things, or he wasn't just those things, right? He was without fault, without sin. He was perfect. The Son of God, God, the, third, the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's divine. He's God. He's the only one who could live and die so that your sins could be forgiven. The only one. So then, Jesus asks them the most important question that any person will ever have to answer, but who do you say that I am? Every single one of us has had to or will have to answer that question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a good man? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a moral leader? Or is he your Lord and Savior? Who you say Jesus is will determine who you are. If you say that he was only a good teacher, just a prophet, a good man, what you are is destined to hell. If you say that he is my Lord and my Savior, then you are on the path to heaven. Who you say Jesus is determines who you are. You all have to answer that. If you haven't answered that question, you all have to answer that question for yourself. And if your answer isn't Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you are going to hell when you die. That's not my opinion. That's Bible truth. Now Peter steps right into it here. Simon Peter answers and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is a very important answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, because what he actually says is, you are Lord and Savior. The Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer, Savior, and son of the living God. You are Lord and Savior. By the way, he has to be both. He's not just your Savior. When he saves you, then you worship him as your Lord. In fact, Paul would say, I am now a bondservant of Jesus, one who has chosen to be a servant of the Most High God. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Great job, Peter. That's not from you, but good job hearing that from the Lord and repeating it. Great job. And I also say, he says, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's spend some time there. Jesus says that you are Peter. Now, there are some churches or denominations that look at this verse and say, clearly, Jesus was saying to Peter, you're so holy because of what you just answered that I will build my entire church on you, Peter, and you will be the one who I give the keys to the kingdom of heaven to, and everything will be built on you. And then their entire church is built on this idea of Peter being that first guy from that point all the way down. But here's the problem. They did not believe that at this time when it was said. Nobody believed that that was what Jesus was saying at this time. Because they will still fight after this moment about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If they were really clearly understanding that Jesus was saying, uh, sorry guys, thanks for coming along, but Peter's the one on which I will build my church. They would be like, oh, I guess we'll just fall in line. But they continue on and they say, Lord, can I sit on your left hand and my brother on your right hand? We can, not Peter, but me and John. Can we? They continue to fight over that. Peter himself doesn't believe it. 
He calls all believers living stones in the kingdom of heaven. He will later refer to Jesus as the foundation stone, not himself. That does not mean, what Jesus is saying does not mean that this man, Peter, is whom he will build his... And here, here's some really cool stuff, okay? He calls him Peter. It's a Greek word that is petros. It means little stone, or even very literally, pebble. You are pebble. He says to Peter, you're a pebble. And then he says, on this rock, different word altogether. That means petra which is a large stony mass or stony ground, okay? And he says, on this, I will build my church. Now, this is really interesting, okay? Because the word church, it's the first time that Jesus uses the word church. And it's a Greek word, ekklesia. And it, it means, oh, I wrote it down. It's too good. Hold on. Where did I write it? It means that it's a group of people called out from where they were to God. Ecclesia, that's what that means. And so really, he's, he's looking at Peter and he's saying, Peter, you're a pebble. You're one, you made one confession. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says. You made that one confession. But on this rock, this stony ground, this ground made up of many stones, one confession, Peter, many confessions, stony ground, Petra, that is what I will build my church on, or that is what my church will be, is a group of people called out from the world making the same confession that you just made, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and on that, I will build my church. It's what you have right here. A group called out of the world who have made the same confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I will follow and serve you for the rest of my life. And he says, on that is what my church is built on. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, now he's, he's talking about, now imagine you've got all of this pagan worship going on behind them because they're at kind of this, the, this um, place where there was that, you know, mountain and the water coming out. And he's like, all of this that you see here, all of this worship that is of pagan gods and of, of, of fake deities, none of that will be able to prevail. And the word prevail is, is overpower. None of this that you see in the world will be able to overpower this. The confession of many people saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, will never be overpowered by anything that is going on out there. Not because we're strong, but because he's all powerful. Then he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven you know, this actually is where that idea of St. Peter at the pearly gates, like letting people in or not letting them in, this is where that comes from. He's like, people look at this and say, oh, well, Jesus said that he was going to give Peter the keys to the kingdom, meaning like he's got the keys to the pearly gates and he'll let you in or not let you in. But it's a, it's a misunderstanding. He's actually, he talk, I, I believe he's talking to all of them and he's saying, I'm going to give you the keys. Now, keys, the word keys in Greek, it means Keys. <laughs> but the idea is a key opens a lock or opens a door, right? So he's saying, um, I'm giving you the truth with which you will open the gates of everyone's hearts so that they can hear and believe. I'm giving you, and you know what he says to us? I'm giving you the keys to open up the doors of truth so that people can hear that and they can also be set free. That is what he says to them. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. All right, that, that's a little confusing, because what it sounds like is saying that God in heaven will need to do whatever it is that we do down here, like he somehow has to obey our actions down here. You know, if we're binding something here, he's like, well, I got to bind that up here in heaven. And that's not what it says, actually. Um... It says, uh, bind. I want to tell you a couple of these words. Um, the word bind means, um, in Greek, it means to declare to be prohibited or unlawful. Whatever you declare to be prohibited or unlawful on earth. Okay, that's that part. Then loose means to release what has been held back. Okay, 
Um, but the real key to understanding this passage are the words will be. In English, it says will be, but in Greek, it says as is. So it's like um, they should, I'm going to, I rewrote this. They should proclaim what is unlawful and release what has been held back here on earth as it is in heaven already. Does that sound familiar? As it is in heaven. When they asked Jesus how to pray, what did he say? Pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what he tells them. You are to proclaim what is already a reality in heaven here on earth. Bind whatever is unlawful and release anything that has been held back. Bind the unlawful, release the truth. That is what he says. And I've given you the keys to do it. Now go and do that. All of us have been given the same commission. Take the keys, open the door, bind what has been, declare what is unlawful or prohibited in heaven and release the truth of heaven that's been held back here and see lives change. And know that whatever you see going out there will not overpower God. Oh man, that, I tell you what, that gives me great comfort. Well, I see news articles and videos and the state of the world is a mess and this country is, you know, sick. And I don't worry. I don't worry. Because I know he's already overcome it. He's the God who was and is and is to come. That means he was then, he is now, and he is in the future. He already knows that. So if he already knows that he's overcome it, and he tells me not to worry because he's overcome it, then I'm not going to worry. I'm still going to vote. But I'm not going to worry. If the candidate that I voted for doesn't win, I'm like, oh, God knows. God's in control. God is in control of this. So I'm not going to worry. And that's why he says, don't be anxious. Just pray. Don't be anxious. Just pray. Okay. I'm going to pray. (laughs) Then he commanded disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus Christ. He said, it's still not soon. It's still not time for everybody else to know this, but it is important guys that you know this. Now he's already spent some time telling them, who he was, explaining who he was, and what they should do. Now he's going to go on and say what he is about to do. It says in verse 21, from that time that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised from the dead on the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Oh, Peter. Peter. Rockhead. Peter's like, well, I just, you know, I had great revelation given to me from heaven. So, Lord, come over here. Jesus. That thing you just said about suffering and dying, don't say that. And, you know, actually what I think Peter was saying is not don't talk about it. He, what he was saying was, we will not let that happen to you, Lord. Do you know what Peter, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die and then rise from the grave. I'm going to rise three days later. You know what Peter heard? I'm going to suffer and die. He didn't hear the rise from the dead three days later part, did he? No, he was very focused on suffer and die. We will not let that happen. This really upsets Jesus. I'm going to tell you why. He turns to Peter now and he says, get behind me, Satan. Not the words you want to hear from your Lord and your Savior. When he says, get behind me, you know, when, you, when he says, oh, Peter, great job. You've, you've discerned this great wisdom from the Lord, and Peter's feeling really good. And then the next thing Jesus says to you is, get behind me, Satan. He says, you are an offense to me. <laughs> Do you know Jesus, in sticking with the whole rock kind of analogy, actually says, you are a stumbling stone to me. That's the word offense. You are a stumbling stone to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. He's Peter speaking out in his flesh, rather than hearing from God, 
speaks something that Jesus says, that's a stumbling block to me. Do you know why? And do you know why he calls him Satan? Does he really think that Peter is Satan? Come on. No, what he says is, what you're telling me is coming from Satan. You remember this. Peter is saying to him, you are not going to go to the cross. Jesus knows he has to go to the cross. There is no other way for him to bring salvation to the world but to go to the cross. Is he happy about it? I think ultimately he is. But do you know that in the garden he's praying to his father and he says, Lord, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. And I don't think that Jesus was too worried about the physical pain, although it would be tremendous. I think he was more concerned that the son of the living God who had spent from eternity to this moment would be separated from him, which he had never been before. And I think that was breaking him up inside the idea that I would have to take on the sin and in doing so be separated from my father for the first time. That was heavy, heavy on his soul. And so now you've got a a trusted man coming to him and saying, you don't have to do that. Satan comes to Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness with that very same temptation. He says, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. Just look out at everything. I'll give it all to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross to get all of this. I'll give it to you. Worship me. Jesus is essentially hearing the same words out of Peter's mouth. We will not allow you to go to the cross, Jesus. You don't have to do that. And Jesus is saying, it's hard enough for me getting through what I have to do. You are stumbling me. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. In his flesh, Peter is persuaded by the subtle voice of Satan. When he's in the spiritual place, he is hearing the word of God. You see that? He hears the word of God who says, this is my son. This is the son of God, the Christ. In his flesh, he hears from Satan who says, tell Jesus he doesn't have to go to the cross. You're going to stop that from happening. (sighs) Then Jesus looks at his disciples who are probably all like, No, I'm not. They're thinking, I'm never saying anything. I'm never talking again. I'm not going to speak ever again in the presence of Jesus. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Man, there's a bit. Jesus says, if you want to come follow me, you have to dis- deny yourself. It literally means to look back at what was and say, I'm not that. That's what the word means literally, to look back and say, I am not that person anymore. That's that part. That's how you begin to follow Christ, is you say, that person that I was is dead. I'm a new creation now, following after Christ. And then it says, to take up your cross. Everybody knew, that was a saying. Everybody knew what that meant. The cross was a one-way trip. You did not take up your cross and walk up to the hill of execution and then come back a day or a month later. You took up your cross. It was a one-way trip. At the end of it, you died. And so Jesus is saying, you look back and you say, this is not, I'm not that person anymore. I'm a new creation. And I am going after Jesus now one way, and there is no returning back to what I was. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, that's what it takes. Then he says, Forever, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever desires to save his life, the word save means to deliver from danger. And life is soul. That's the word. These are the Greek words. Will lose it is to, be, to perish or to be cut off from. To find it is to discover it. So this is how you could read this verse. Whoever tries to deliver his own soul from danger will be cut off. But whoever dies to himself and surrenders to the Savior will find eternal life. And that's what Jesus says to them. 
Then he says, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Oh, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What profit is to a man to gain, the, to, to gain everything that the world has to offer comes to a very distinct end. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many possessions you own. At some point, your life ends. And then what? The richest, most wisest man in the entire world caught a hold of this. Solomon. Listen, he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to read here. Um, He writes, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay a hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. He's like, I was trying to figure out how to be smart and drunk and rich and have fun all the time. I made, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted my vin- myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from to which to water the growing trees of the grove. Do you think he did? Uh, as a side note, but when you read this, he's like, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did I just don't see Solomon out there with like a hoe, like planting carrots and beans and stuff. He's really taking a lot of credit for things like a lot of other people did. He says, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had great possessions of herds and flocks, Then all who were in Jerusalem before me, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings in all the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and the musical instruments of all kind. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all of my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor, that I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity, and grasping for the wind, there was no profit under the sun. He had everything a person could ever desire, searching for happiness, And he says it was empty, like grasping at the wind. At the end, in chapter 12, he says this. He comes to the end of it. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Man. Jesus says, what, it, what profit is it of you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? Solomon would say, I tried it. I had the whole world, and it was still empty. The, the, the whole of the matter is fear God, serve God, love God. <clears throat> For the Son of Man will come in his glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Notice it doesn't say judge each according to his works. Reward because he's talking about those who have made that confession. You are the Son, the living God. He's not judging based on works. He's rewarding based on works. In 28 it says, Surely I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You know, honestly, there's like a lot of different things that people believe that this verse means. Oh, it could be the transfiguration, or it could be, you know, he's talking about, you know, whoever reads this now in terms of like whoever is reading this when he comes back, that's who it applies to. I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't know. But this is what I think it means. Um, that he is talking to them right there, his audience of disciples, and he's saying that some of you here are going to be alive when, I, when he says, come into his kingdom, rise from the dead. So he defeats death and the human shell that he was living in and is in now a glorified body that right before he, he uh, after he's resurrected, but before he ascends into heaven, I believe he's saying to them, some of you will be still alive when I come out of the grave. Um, and in, in that glorified um, fullness of deity before I go into heaven, because we know that some of them will be. Not all of them. Judas is there. He won't be there at the end. And so I think that's what he's saying um, in that last verse there. 
Maybe not, but that's what I think. Well, I'm spent. How about you guys? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do just thank you so much today for, uh, for this time in your word. Again, what a privilege it is for us to be here, um, gathered together amongst um, this ecclesia, this group of people who have made that same confession as Peter, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lord, what... Lord, I know that it is on that confession that you build your church and not even the people in it because we are so flawed. But Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone here who is not part of that ecclesia, not part of that group, Lord, who is here because a friend brought them or here because they don't know why, but they wandered into the door or they're listening online or they're in their car or however they're hearing this message, Lord, if they've not made that confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the savior, the Lord, my savior, my Lord, that they would feel the pressure of the Holy Spirit and be compelled to call out and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Lord, I know that you are so gracious and loving that in that moment of sincere humility calling out to be saved, Lord, that you do that. Your word says so. I trust your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that if anybody here or anyone listening has done that, even now, just in their mind, have called out and said, Lord, forgive me for I am a sinner and I need to be saved. Lord, I pray that you would make it known so that we might celebrate with that person. If they're here, Lord, that they would come forward even as we sing this last song and say, I accepted Jesus as my Savior today. Lord, if they're listening online or if they're listening to the podcast, Lord, that they would reach out to the church or they would email us or call us and say, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior so that we might celebrate with them, Lord. Another soul snatched from the pit of hell. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way. Lord, we thank you for this today, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.